I don't know, there's something about that that makes me always want to go work out or something, right? How are y'all doing this morning? Yeah? All right. We got a little uh, football game going on today that you're not worried about, I'm sure. But uh, let, me, let me talk to you about something this morning that I think is one of the most life-impacting questions that I've ever asked you. And I've asked you a lot of questions. What is the foundation on which you are building your life? Have you chosen it by purpose or by default? Because even if you say, well, I really haven't chosen the foundation of my life yet, you indicate that you really already have by all of the little and big decisions that you make, the thousands of them that you make every day. Because you're making those decisions based off of a fundamental foundation, what you are building your life around. And Wes and I have, are talking this first couple of weeks of this For the Win series. We're going to get into some real specifics about relationships, marriage, you know, just a lot of different things. But uh, it's so important that we get this foundation thing right because without it, all the rest of it kind of falls apart. Wes shared last week about some lives out of Hebrews in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, these lives that uh, are heroes of God and how they live their life. And they live their life based on a certain foundation, the foundation of faith. And I want to talk a little bit more about that because if we have faith as our foundation, it changes everything. And maybe it's not exactly what we've thought that it is. In fact, maybe today it's going to kind of move your thinking and turn it upside down a little bit. You know, Jesus always was doing that. He, he, he's the one that said, if you want to be lifted up or exalted, then be really humble. If you want to be, you know, the ruler, be the servant of everyone. He, he, he kind of flipped a lot of our thinking on its head. I, I want us to look at what choosing faith as our foundation really means, what faith really is. The book of Hebrews, chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, talk all about this. Let me give you a simple definition of faith. I want you to write it down. It's there in your worship guide. We're gonna walk through it. Some of it you're gonna go, oh, I, I know that. But then the next thing might kind of throw you, all right? So a simple definition of faith. Faith is belief in God's promises. Faith is belief in God's promises. We all know that there is belief in faith. I mean, you're not going to go to a doctor unless you believe that he can help you. You're not going to get on an elevator like I did in Mexico City this week. It was like a 200-year-old building, and I think the elevator was 200 years old, you know. But I got on there. I believed it was going to take me up to the top floor, and it took me almost there. But the... Um, you know, you're not going to get on, you're going to take the stairs if you don't believe in it, right? So, unfortunately, a lot of people stop their definition of faith right there. They, they think that faith is belief and, and, and that's it. It's, it's like, it's belief without any mixture of anything else in there, any doubt or anything else, which, you know, if you were just going to stay at home in the bed with the covers up over your head, might work. But in the real world, that's not exactly how it is, all right? So let's go on. Faith is belief in God's promises plus unbelief. 
You say, well, wait a minute, Mark, what? Well, in this world, it's hard to arrive at 100% certainty about anything. You hope the doctor can help you, like we talked about, but he might be a quack, right? It, you hope the elevator's gonna get you there, but might be something wrong with the cable. People who truly believe that faith means 100% certainty are paralyzed most of the time that I've seen. They're waiting for something that's never going to happen. As soon as I get 100% certainty, I know I'm gonna have enough faith and then I'm gonna do it. And then you're just waiting and waiting. I call that stalling in faith, okay? In truth, there's always unbelief mixed with the belief. Let me give you a, a good example. I mean, when I die, I've been there a lot with people as a pastor who've taken their last breath and I've watched some people die really well, some people not so well, and, and I get that. I mean, it's a fearful journey, but when I take my last breath on this planet, on this earth, and then, I'll, you know, I think in eternity, it's like I'm gonna open one eye and kind of look around, you know? Yeah, I knew it, I believed it. Well, that doesn't really sound like I believed it, does it? You know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It's gonna be like this, ah, oh, I knew it, I just knew it, I knew it, but there was some doubt. And you ever had, a, I mean, don't think that there's not doubt sometimes. All of us feel that, we've never been there. So what distinguishes me from an unbeliever? If I have some doubt, it's how I live my life. It's how I base my decisions. And so let's put this into our definition of faith. Faith is belief in God's promises plus mixed with unbelief, but acting on the belief part, okay? Faith is wavering between belief and unbelief, doubt and assurance, hope and despair, and finally, maybe hesitantly, with your heart in your hands, acting on the belief part. Let me just again say clearly, faith, living by faith, some people, they think it's just being 100% sure of everything. That's not what it means. That almost never happens. Living by faith means acting on the belief part that you have. It means taking a step, no matter how small, how halting. Did you know that like a halting step forward can be a step of faith? It is, because you're going in the right direction. It talks about it in Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm not gonna go through that whole uh, scripture for you. It tells all these different things that people did. But in verse 30 of chapter 11, it says, by faith, they brought the walls of Jericho tumbling down after the people of Israel had walked around them seven days as God commanded them. I want you just to think about that for a minute. Here's Jericho. It's a fortified city, never been taken. And it's right at the, across the Jordan in the promised land. And the people come across the Jordan, God does this miracle, and then they come up against this city, and they're not gonna get past this city if, if they don't take it. But it's got these giant walls, and nobody has ever taken it. And so God tells Joshua what to do, and he tells the people, and here's what they do. They march around the city, because God told them to. And, and so I imagine that first day they marched around, and probably the pagan people inside of Jericho are going, like, what's happening, what's going on? and they're singing and they're praising the Ark of the Covenant is going out in front of them. Nothing happens. They, second day they come and they do the same thing and the, about the fourth day the people are going like, what is wrong with these people down here, you know? And I would imagine about half of the Israelites marching around going, what are we doing, you know? 
what's happening? And because it's hot, it's humid, it, it, it's difficult. I mean, would you whine if you were doing that? You know, this is like, doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. And they just, but they kept doing it and they kept doing it, kept doing it on that seventh day. They marched around seven times and the seventh time, earthquake like, I mean, the walls are just come down in this crazy God thing. That's what it looks like to live by faith. It doesn't mean that it was perfect as they walked around. It doesn't mean they didn't whine a little bit sometimes. It doesn't mean that, that you know, that they weren't going like, I, I don't get what we're doing. So that's, that, that's how faith works. So let me say it again. Faith is belief plus unbelief and acting on the belief part. Don't worry about your doubts. Faith is always mixed with doubts. When you finally get up the courage to act on the belief part, in spite of your doubts, you're truly living by faith. But there's more to the story even than that. That might have thrown you a little bit going like, okay, I haven't heard that definition. But it's still kind of an incomplete picture. That's still a little bit too easy because faith and living by faith is often very difficult and it doesn't always end up the way we would like. Let me ask you the question this way. Does living by faith mean that you will always receive a miracle? Well, what's your definition of a miracle? Consider again the heroes of the faith that Wes went through last week. I want to just read it to you again from the Passion Translation, which I think really nails the original Greek of the New Testament and brings it into our language really accurately but really vividly. Listen to this. Through faith's power, they conquered kingdoms, established true justice. Their faith fastened onto their promises and pulled them into reality. It was faith that shut the mouth of lions, put out the power of raging fire, caused many to escape certain death by the sword. In their weakness, their faith imparted power to make them strong. Faith sparked courage within them. They became mighty warriors in battle, pulling armies from another realm into battle array. Talking about prayer. Faith-filled women saw their dead children raised in resurrection power. Wow, you, that's, I mean, that's, you getting excited about faith? But listen to this. And it was faith that enabled others to endure great atrocities. They were stretched out on the wheel and tortured. They didn't deny their faith in order to be freed because they longed for a more honorable and glorious resurrection. Others were mocked and experienced the most severe beating with whips. They were in chains and in prison. Some of these faith champions were brutally killed by stoning, some by being sawn in two, some by being slaughtered by the sword. These lived in faith as they went about wearing goatskins and sheepskins. They lost everything they possessed. They endured great afflictions. They were cruelly mistreated. They wandered the earth, living in the desert wilderness, in caves on barren mountains, in holes in the earth. Truly the world was not even worthy of them not realizing who they were. By faith, they were sawn in two. I mean, did you get that? And if you look at these people, their faith isn't weaker. I mean, it was Isaiah the prophet that was sawn in two by by an evil king. Their faith was not weaker. In fact, it was stronger because it enabled them to endure incredible suffering they stayed faithful even when things didn't work out right in light of that let me revise my definition 
of faith just a little bit. You ready to finish it? Faith is belief in God's promises plus unbelief and acting on the belief part without regard to the consequences. Living by faith means you take a a step of faith without knowing where it leads you. If you're Noah, God says build an ark. It's never rained yet. So your belief, I mean, the people are going like, what a weird looking building, dude, you know? It's a boat. What's a boat? It hasn't rained. And and, and so they're, you know, I believe it's gonna rain. And not only that, I'm believing this thing's gonna float because I built it the way that God told me. If you're Abraham, you set out for the promised land, just hoping you're gonna get there before you die. If you're David, you go into the valley to fight the giant and you're just praying, God, I'm here because I know you want me here. Please let this first stone hit him in the head and kill him because if it doesn't, I, you know, I don't think I'm gonna get a second shot. So sometimes it works out. Other times, not so much. Faith means you step out with no guarantees. Again, as I've been at the grave of many a believer, I've been at the deathbed of many a believer, and I hear sometimes things like, he was so sure God was going to heal him. He was just so sure of it. What happened? Did God fail? Was there just not enough faith exhibited on our part? The writer of Hebrews says, no, you just can't understand the storyline that God is writing. I read this week about a little Asian monk in the fourth century. His name was Telemachus. And Telemachus, he, he was in a monastery and he was like the gardener. He was a monk, he was the gardener and he took care of this beautiful little garden and he kept it. But in his heart, he kept hearing God say, I want you to go to Rome. I want you to go to Rome. And he didn't know why, but he just couldn't get it. And over the weeks and months, he couldn't get it out of his heart. So he he said, okay, God, I'll go. And he took off for Rome. Went across Asia Minor and caught a ship and got to the imperial city of Rome. And as he got there, everyone, these huge crowds were moving toward the Colosseum. The the Romans were having a celebration. They had just defeated the Goths. And in their celebration, they were going to do it in the Colosseum. And of course, they did it with the gladiators. And so Telemachus just followed the, the people and he got there and he sat down and in marched these heavily muscled men and, and they salute the Caesar and say, we who are about to die salute you as they lift their swords. And they begin to fight. And then wild animals are introduced and all these other kind of things. People are torn up. People are fighting to the death. Telemachus is stunned. He's never heard of, seen such a thing. And he begins to think, this is why I came. And he says, from the crowd, in the name of God, stop. This little slight monk is going, in the name of God, but he's one of thousands of voices. They can't hear him. So he runs down to the side uh, of the big arena floor. In the name of God, stop. Still no one hears him. So he runs out onto the floor. I don't think anybody else has ever done that because that wasn't really a wise thing to do, you know? And, and he's out there and he's trying to stop. In the name of God, stop. And the people thought he was kind of like a rodeo clown or something, you know? So they're all going, <laughs> look at that little guy out there, you know, in the robe. Trying. But then one of the gladiators almost got his head taken off because 
Telemachus blocked his view as he's saying, stop. And all the people saw that it was just a guy that a random guy, you know, running out on the field. And uh, kind of like, you know, sometimes happens in our sporting events. But we didn't do what they said. The crowd turned on him in an instant and began to say, kill him, kill him, kill him. And the gladiator who he had blocked his view a little bit just ran him through in the gut with his sword. And everything quieted. And Telemachus fell down to his knees. And as his life's blood was pouring out between his hands, he said, in the name of God, stop before he died. History tells us that the gladiators dropped their swords and the people were deathly quiet and that that was the last gladiatorial contest in the history of Rome because a couple of days later, Honorius, the emperor, so impressed by the martyrdom of the little monk, declared a ban forever on all gladiator games. Did Telemachus make a difference? Yeah. Did it turn out like he thought it was going to for him? Not so much. But you see, God is writing a story. And in this story, the crazy thing is we get to be a part of it. I want you to think about it. Did he have his doubts? Yeah. Listen to what the Bible says about faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's a real substance. I mean, there's something there. It's not like blind faith is, is, doesn't make any sense from a biblical perspective. There's always evidence for it. But listen to how the Message Bible says, gives those same verses. I really like this. It's really accurate. The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors, set them above the crowd. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's necessary, if you want to come to God, you have to have two things. You have to believe that he is, that he exists. Why would you come to someone who doesn't exist? So you're not coming anyway. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And if he's not a rewarder, why would anyone want to come to him? But the, the person of faith not only believes that God exists, but that he's a rewarder. He rewards those who seek him. And apart from this kind of faith, the Bible says it's impossible to please God. All the good works in the world don't please God if they're not born out of this kind of faith. The man or woman who has set his or her heart to seek God with the belief that God will reveal himself is the person who pleases God. So how do you please God? Live sinlessly? No. Live flawlessly? No. Live without any doubts? No. Succeed beautifully? No. We need faith. Faith that believes, has doubts, but acts in each decision with the belief that God is good, that relationship with him is the best thing possible. See, we seek God and God is pleased. In the seeking of him, he's pleased. We seek the one who's pleased 
with us. We are the cause of God's pleasure. Can you even imagine? Your faith ignites God's pleasure. We experience the pleasure of being pleasing to him and a close personal relationship ensues unbelievably with the great God of the universe, the one and only God of the universe. The reward is the relationship. I read this week in my daily time with God, I I try to have a, a little bit of time with God reading the Bible each day apart from like sermon preparation and stuff because uh, that's not really my personal time. That's us together. But I, I was reading and I, I read the story of right after the resurrection of Jesus on that Sunday that he rose. I mean, hours after he arose and these two guys are walking from Jerusalem to this little town called Emmaus. They're two of Jesus' disciples and doesn't even say who they are, but they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know he had arisen. And then Jesus himself comes up and supernaturally He's hidden from their, uh, their vision that it's him. They just think it's another man joined them. And listen to what these guys say because I think it really helps me understand this faith thing a little bit more. In Luke 24, 21 through 32, they, they, they say this. Are you the only one that, that doesn't know what's going on? You haven't heard about this Jesus? I mean, Jesus was crucified and we, we, we were thinking that he was the Messiah. In fact, verse 21, but we trusted that it had been he who should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, this is the third day since these things were done. We trusted. I want you to write this down. Trust is essential for close personal relationships. We trusted. And then they go on in verse 22. Yea, and certain women also of our company who were early at the sepulcher made us astonished when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the sepulcher, found it even as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then Jesus said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? What is he saying? He says, you seem to be struggling because God didn't do it the way you thought he was going to do it. You thought this Messiah was gonna be a reigning king, and he is a reigning king, but he had a whole different objective in front of him, the suffering, the death, the salvation. Write this down, truth is the basis for trust. If someone lies to you or deceives you, you'll not always trust what he says or does. But truth always sets us free. And here's what Jesus did with them. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And as they drew nigh unto the village where they were going, he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him saying, abide with us for it's toward evening. The day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. Write this down. Truth must be expressed in love. By love, I mean the highest good of the other person. To blast the other person might feel good to you, but that's not love. You say, well, that's just how I am. I just, I'm just frank, you know? That's not love. In fact, Jesus, it kind of puts a different way on how 
he said, you fools. That's King James Version. In a really good translation, it says, oh, foolish men. And so slow to believe, slow of heart. I think it was more like that. And they're like, what? You know, because if someone said, fool, you know, you're going like, oh, that's real loving, you know. So I think it was more like that. But I think he probably says that to us sometimes. The reason why I know he did it lovingly because they invited him to, to supper. You don't, you know, call me a fool. Let's go eat, you know. Only lawyers do that with each other. But <laughs> verse 30, and it came to pass as he said it, meet with them. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. Their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the way and while he opened the scriptures to us? Why do I bring that out? The elements of trust also apply with God. We trust God. That's why we have faith. Faith is trust. Well, what about all those things that happen that we don't understand? I mean, have you had some of that? I mean, does anybody, can anybody say you haven't had some of that? No, I get it. I get everything God did. I know exactly what he do. Liar, right? Here's the thing. Unbelief, when one of these things happens that we don't get, says God is a liar. Unbelief says God doesn't care. Unbelief says maybe there's not even a God. But what does belief say? God is other. You might just want to write that down. That's meant a lot to me. Like God is other. I don't have a place for you there, but he's so far above us. A year ago in the winter, one of the ducks on the lake behind our house had babies in our pool. Amazing. You know, I mean, I guess she had eggs first. I don't know how it works, but you know, I mean, the babies were, she brought them all into the pool and they were tiny and they were so tiny that they couldn't jump over the ledge. And so compassionate me, I went out there to save the little duckies, you know? And so I I built up rocks so they could get out, but they did not trust my rocks. In fact, they were on the other side of the pool. It's freezing cold. The pool's not heated up. I got in the pool and I started with the net going after the little duckies. And you know what they did? They came up to me and go, thank you for saving me. No, they didn't do that at all. They, I mean, those things can really move. It took forever to get them out of the pool, you know? But I saved every one of them. It was amazing. But you know, to the ducks, I am other. I had really good intentions, but they didn't get them. They didn't know what I was doing. In fact, later they jumped back in the pool and, and, and drowned in the little thing. But that's another part of the story. <laughs> that's not the story. What is the reward? Write this down. God himself. The relationship is the reward. Listen to how the, the Bible puts it. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who's the author of our faith and the one who brings it to its goal. He's the author. God is writing, Jesus is writing this amazing story of faith. He's the author of it. And he's gonna write an amazing ending. In view of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? Wes told us last week, it was you. I mean, he's God on the cross. And he could have come down at any point But he knew if he did, you wouldn't have salvation because he was paying your debt. 
I believe our, our faces, our names probably flashed through his mind as impossible as that seems because he's God. They said he was mumbling on the cross. Maybe he was mumbling our names. God, this is for Mark, for James, for Sally. You know, and, and that's what he was doing. It, he said, I'm not coming down because I want you. Like when a mom gives birth and there's all this pain, but then they bring the baby in and she's like, ah, that was so worth it. And the dad's going like, no, it was not worth it. You know, that's what it's like. Jesus got it's worth it. But listen, it goes on to say, it says, carefully consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinful people so you do not grow weary and lose heart. You're his joy, but I want you to focus on him. Fix your eyes on him. He's your joy. The relationship is the reward. And as you focus on him and his heart that's good for you and wants good for you and only good for you, it enables you to not grow weary. So Jesus is writing this amazing story of faith, but here's the twist. We discover at the foot of the cross, it's a love story. He loves you. He wants you in his family. He wants you. And he was willing to do everything that it took to get us because we were helpless like those baby ducks. And most of us in this old world never understand that, never get that, are always running away. You know when I finally got those little ducks? When they totally tired out and kind of floated to the surface and I just picked them up in my hand. And they're looking at me like, okay, you're gonna kill me now, aren't you? I'm I'm saving you. You think God feels like that sometimes? Okay, I'm gonna save you. No, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. Don't trust you. A lot of us, we come to Jesus initially because of a felt need. And that's fine, that's good. God, heal my marriage. God, heal my body. God, give me a a good job. It's okay to start there. And that's where most of us started and God knows that. And he does some things that are incredible. I've seen, we've seen so many thousands of marriages turn around, but it's not okay just to stay there. We've got to get past there because when the miracle comes and your marriage is turned around and it's the most amazing thing, it feels like in your life, I want you to say, God is better. And when we seem to wait for the miracle in vain and we don't understand, faith says, God is better and he's still good, but he's other. I don't know what he's doing. See, many of us this morning, we feel like we're living the nightmare instead of the dream. We don't seem to be conquering kingdoms. Lions are devouring us, not the other way around. Uh, Fires are are, are consuming us. Swords are cutting us. God is good. God is better. I want God more than life itself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived during the time of the Nazis in Germany. He was distinguished professor at the University of Berlin. Probably one of the brightest lights that had in a long time, but he saw that the idealism invading the church in Germany, it was called Nazism. Invading the church in Germany. 
Heil Hitler, the church said. And he said, this can't be in the name of God. Stop. And he began to preach against it and speak against it. The professor of systematic theology at the university said, it's so foolish. It's a great pity that our best hope in the faculty is being wasted on this church struggle. God's story for Bonhoeffer wasn't the miracle. He was arrested and he was hanged naked in the Flossenburg concentration camp. His body tossed into a pile of refuse and burnt. His death tragically came only two days before the Americans liberated Flossenburg. God, what are you doing? What in the world? Some quench the power of fire, some don't. Why did God allow Bonhoeffer to die? As he faced the fury of the Third Reich, here's what Bonhoeffer said. The ultimate responsible question is not, how can I heroically make the best of a bad situation? But rather, how the coming generation can be enabled to live. How they can know the truth. How they can see what's right. That's death-defying passion for God. That's faith. I wrote this down for you and I didn't put any blanks because I didn't want you to miss it. When we use Jesus to get the same thing the world wants, it's clear to everyone that we have the same treasure that the world does. It's not Jesus. He's just the ticket. And tickets are thrown away when the show begins. The verses in Hebrews chapter 10 That whole starting of that says, basically, I'll sum it up for you. Having God is better than money. Having God is better than sex. Having God is better than circumstantial happiness. Jesus said it this way. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He didn't say I am. He said you are. I want us to be Exactly that. My prayer for you is that you're salty, that you're bright, a radical risk-taking flavor, a gutsy countercultural wartime flavor that makes the average prosperous, comfortable American churchgoer uncomfortable. Not because we're trying to, it just does. That, that we live in such a way that over the next decade or two or three, our church becomes bright and salty like that. That Your life in ministry shines like that, that has that flavor. It's Jesus because we have the great reward of relationship with God. We've really lived. You've treasured Jesus more than out of bounds sex. You've treasured Jesus more than the accumulation of things. You've treasured Jesus more than your right to feel momentarily happy. That's what the world is waiting to see. It might even awaken something in our country. They're looking for something radical, some risk, some sacrifice, some extraordinary love, something salty and bright. Now, they may not like it when they see it. In fact, they might crucify it. That's what the world tends to do with these things. But they won't be bored. Listen to what verse 39 says of Hebrews 11, all these having gained approval through their faith, 
Oh yeah, you mean the ones that quenched fire? The ones that, you know, that did all these amazing things? Yes. Oh, you mean the one they got sawed in two? And the one that got hacked into pieces? And the one that got put on the wheel? And Yes. They gained approval from God through their faith. They did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. The word perfect there literally means whole. They wouldn't be made complete. Despite the fact that the heroes of Hebrews 11 were pleasing God by their faith, they're not yet complete. And what is the reason? Believe it or not, us. You see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's saying that this story, God's great story of faith isn't complete without you. We're the final chapter. Long ago, God foresaw the final chapter, the climax of the book. God is waiting to add the chapter of our lives, our triumphs, our sufferings, our faith to the book. Write this down. This is, this is so stunning to me. We are God's surprise ending. And I, I feel like that part of my job as your pastor is to prepare you for that. I don't know what's coming. I don't know what it's going to look like. But if this is getting close to the end, it's going to be difficult you know, we've lived in this Pax Americana all of our lives and we think this is what the world looks like. It's not what the world looks like to most people in the world. There was a Pax Romana, a Roman piece for many years, but it didn't last. So here's your homework. Are you ready? I want you to check yourself and be totally honest with yourself. Are you a believer? Is faith the foundation of your life? God has waited all this time so you could be the surprise ending. How do you know? By looking at your decisions that you make. What's the basis? And then number two, and we're gonna do it right now. We're gonna pause and remember and give thanks to Jesus because it's a love story. And we do this every week at Community of Faith because what we do is we take communion together. Jesus said, don't forget this. Do this often. Why? It's when you see his face and you know he loves me. He cares about me. Look what he did on the cross for me. See, maybe something's going on in your life right now and you go, I don't think God cares. Just look at Jesus on the cross. He cares. He really cares. If you died for me, the Bible says, he who gave his only son for us, won't he freely give us what we need? Isn't his heart good for us? How we do communion at Community of Faith, they're on the bottom floor here, there's some tables with candles on them. We've got some people up in the top so you don't have to get up and move around. They're gonna bring communion up to you. I'm just gonna ask you, please don't move around to leave. Only move to take communion. This is your time with Jesus right now and as you say take the bread you take the cup Jesus I trust you Jesus I believe that your heart is good for me
I don't understand the circumstances right now, but I choose to believe. I have a lot of doubts right now. I'm feeling a lot of doubts. Welcome to the human race. Let me pray over you before you take communion. God, as we do this, as we take your bread and your cup, your body and your blood that it represents, let us remember, let us see you and what you did. And as you called out our name on the cross, that you love us and you want us to step into this relationship with you and believe, let us make this the foundation of our lives because then and only then will our marriages truly change. Then and only then will our lives be transformed. But that's just the byproduct. The reward is you. Let us experience you. I pray that no one in this place will leave today without experiencing you, either in this moment or in the days ahead. And I claim it in Jesus' name.